Brought to you by Bank of America, Merrill Lynch. With virtual reality, virtually everything will change. Discover opportunities in a transforming world. B of AML.com slash VR. Merrill Lynch, Pierce, Fenner, and Smith, Incorporated. Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen with David Gura. Daily, we bring you insight from the best of economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. Well, good morning on a Friday, the 21st of July. Happy Friday, everybody. This is Bloomberg Surveillance on Bloomberg Radio. David Guerrero with Tom Keen in New York. Joining us now in our Bloomberg 1130 studios here in New York is Chris Ferrone. He's the head of technical analysis at Strategist Research Partners. And uh, it's great to see you. I want to start broad, if I could, here, talk about uh, the markets. If I could, on Monday, you wrote, it's difficult to get negative with all the major indices uh, at new highs. Sure. Let's start just uh, with, with your perspective on uh, the indices here in the U.S. and globally. I know you look at them all in aggregate. Yeah, exactly. When you look at when the big top formations typically take shape, it's when participation has gotten very, very narrow, not when all the groups and all the indices and all the sectors are making new highs. I mean, just think about the last week or so. We've had everything from the Russell 2000 to the S&P to the equal weighted S&P, the value line index, most global indices uh, at or near new highs. That is a confirmed backdrop where we're not seeing the narrowness that typically accompanies a, a bigger problem. So I recognize where we are here in the calendar. I recognize the next 12 weeks uh, are often uh, the toughest stretch of the year, but we have to make a differentiation between a pause or a consolidation and a big top. And we just do not think we're on the verge uh, of a big problem here. Yeah, talk a bit about that that calendar you sure. mentioned. It's a, it is a short-term risk. Why is that the case historically? Why is, uh, why is uh, August and September so problematic? You know, I think you can come up with a lot of reasons. It's kind of a lull in the calendar as you get through July earnings. That tends to mark the top in seasonality uh, at least until uh, late September, early October. But what's important and what we've learned in our work is how the trend of the market can really influence seasonality. And when you're in an uptrend, the weakness in uh, September and August is often less pervasive than when you're in a downtrend. Those months are worse when you're already in a bear market or in a downtrend. That's obviously uh, not the case at the moment. Tom and I have been talking a lot about uh, volatility here over these last mm. few weeks, and you did a chart of uh, corporate spread against the CBOE. Let me let me tell you, Uh-oh. Chris, never Uh-oh. in Gura's life did he think he'd be talking about No, I didn't. <laughs> Nor did I. <laughs> you've got you've got corporate spreads versus the CBOE, VIX. What do, you, what do you get when you chart those two against one another? Oh, I, I think, you know, we hear a lot of how extraordinary volatility here is being as low uh, as we've seen uh, over recent months, when you look at it as a function of credit, and that's how we think about volatility, when credit conditions are stable, volatility should be low. So when we look at the relationship and when we regress BAA corporate spreads versus the VIX, the VIX is actually right where it should be. It's Mm -hmm. on that line of best fit. The VIX should be low when credit conditions are behaved, and that remains the case. When you you look at, uh, at the credit markets generally... Is there stress? What do you what do you see? Uh, we certainly don't see stress. No. I, I think the more in 
important question as we kind of move through the back half of the year is, do we see signs of complacency? It's possible that may be starting to build here uh, a little bit. Um, We've certainly, you know, we watched uh, stuff like put calls to get a sense of the options market. Um, I would be a little bit reluctant saying that the environment uh, is terribly complacent just yet, but we'll certainly watch that. I think the bigger message is, if this market's going to meaningfully deteriorate, my guess is that credit would weaken as Mm. well. What's the bet of institutions? Everybody, you know, in the modern day loves to talk about hedge funds. What's long only buy side doing? Boring mutual funds. Are they 2% in cash or are they 12% in cash? Well, I think this is where some of the sentiment data can really be helpful in answering that question. And, you know, there's two types of sentiment data. There's data that measures what people say they're doing, surveys, and then there's data that measures what people are actually doing with their money. And we prefer to look at the latter. We want to know what people are actually doing. I would describe the street as modestly net long. I don't think they are as aggressively long as they may like to be. Now, whether it's concerns out of Washington or concerns about earnings that may be inhibiting that, but I would not say we're aggressively long. Look at a chart here. Flipping through the chart book, Tom, in real time. <laughs> I'm looking at uh, folks. You got to understand what this is. We got a liberal arts clown from yes, Cornell definitely. and a political economy guy from Villanova, <laughs> and we're flipping through a chart book. <laughs> let me look. Let, let, I'm looking at your chart of TJX here sure. compared to the S and P 500. Uh, trend break, fade rallies. We've heard so many good things about uh, TJ, TJ Maxx, TJX, in, in contrast to other retailers. Sure. What are you seeing here when you compare these two well, things? Well, that's kind of what worries me about the chart yeah. uh, or about the stock is that it's been a place to hide for so many investors in a really bad sector for now so many years. And um, I have just never seen a bear market in a group where ultimately every stock yeah. doesn't go down. And ultimately, they hit the best ones last and they fit all the bad ones, so they're on to the best one. And I think TJX or Ross Sewers uh, is an example of names that have been good that we need to be more careful with here. How do you technically synthesize the raging debate of bricks and mortar retail mm-hmm. with Amazon? It makes every it's on the Bloomberg Business Week this week, folks, fabulous analysis of the big, big tech companies. But technically, what do you see when somebody says bricks and mortar and Amazon? Well, we know where the weakness uh, has certainly been, and you know we could have said a year ago or two years ago that that relationship was so stretched with strength from Amazon and weakness uh, from the retail names. My sense is that the traditional brick uh, and mortar stocks, the consensus, uh, uh, the view there has now gotten so negative where mm-hmm. we may want to start fishing around for some opportunities. Now, what strikes me is some of these probably will be zeros. Others will not. I wonder if central bank policy, frankly, over the last seven or eight years has probably prolonged this. Yeah. Would we have lost some of these companies already money or money so not cheap. free? Yeah. Exactly. David Gurren, tell me, David, I'm over here calculating how much more expensive a martini is at Hemingway's Bar in Paris uh-huh. since the first round of the elections. <laughs> the dollar's gotten weaker. It's gone from $35 to $37.99. Have you... That's a weak dollar to, impact. It's a, <laughs> That's a weak dollar is here with us. Let's have you chime in here. What do you, Chris, what do, you, do, you, do you have a dollar chart to save me? I, I do have a dollar chart. i try to do the calculation myself. To save you. And I, I think we need to remember something. The dollar has been weakening here for 15 months. This is not a, a new story. And if anything, the dollar is responding 
precisely as it tends to respond in periods when the Fed is raising rates. In five of the last six cycles where the Fed has raised rates, we have seen uh, the dollar go down, not up. I know that sounds counterintuitive, yeah. but that, that is typically how the dollar reacts to a rising rate uh, environment. And I would just say one uh, point further, looking at the DXY, I actually think it's a very poorly constructed index. It's about 70% euro. Yes, we, yes. We prefer to look at an equally weighted dollar index. We put about 20 different pairs in there, and that deteriorated long before, uh, say, euro yeah. strengthened. This is a really important point, and I would point out, uh, David Gurr, that the Bloomberg DXY is a lot better Different blend. Precisely. It, much, much just as equal weighted, just like Chris talks about. But the DXY is what people quote, but often pros use a different index. David? Chris, let me ask you about uh, gold and what you're seeing there. Is this a 1250 uh, level? When you look at the gold chart, what stands out to you? Well, uh, what stands out to me is what hasn't happened. We've had a weak dollar, and gold can't seem to respond. Mm. Um, I think the most interesting things in our business are when something doesn't go up when it should. <laughs> and this is an example of where gold probably could have rallied uh, as the dollar has weakened. And its inability to do so really leaves me questioning the trend. I think 1250, 1275 is ultimately a tough level. I'd say the same thing uh, on the silver chart. I mean, these are uh, really two things that are in, in different trends at best. And I would be inclined to fade rallies in that environment uh, with both gold and silver. And copper continuing to break. Out? Yeah, copper's better here. I think copper's a standout, and we like to look at the ratio between copper and gold, uh, and that ratio has firmed here as well. Now, interestingly, uh, when copper's up, when iron ore is up, when they're outperforming gold, you tend to see rates go up in that environment uh, as well. I know we're kind of stuck in this 220, 230 range, but I would note that the street is very, very long bonds. I think there's a element of complacency there, yeah. where if, if something goes right, you can get a pretty quick move well, higher uh, in yields. That's the second time you've mentioned that today. And as you and I know, bonds are generally out front of shocks than equities. Mm. So if I'm going to play bonds, which bonds do I play if I'm going to get a reversal? Well, I think where you've seen positioning get very crowded is more towards the longer end, uh, 10s and 30s, where uh, that's where I think the trade is most crowded. Um, watch very closely this 220-222 level uh, on yield. I think if we hold that and we get some surprise, you could see that squeeze play out yeah. very quickly. I would point out that uh, someone named Gross out in the West Coast agrees with Mr. Verone's <laughs> analysis. Bill's out at 240 as being much more key, and mm. uh, before that's a fair amount of noise uh, as well. Chris Verone, thank you so much. Greatly Always a pleasure. Just really, really uh, value add, not only on TV. And we'll send the charts out here for radio as well as we uh, get through the morning. We're going to sort of – got to – you know, do our planning I, for the I'm weekend. looking up this uh, bar Hemingway in Paris. It says he drank 51 dry martinis in a row. I didn't there. do that. No, yeah, he, no. Did that. <laughs> no he did that. Hemingway did that. Yeah. No, he did. It's, it's, you know, and it's one of the great things. This is the Ritz-Carlton folks in Paris. And what's great about it is they just redid it and they didn't screw it up. Uh -huh. So many famous hotels and all that, when they redo them, they're never the same. Yeah. And we went in, you know, it's way in the back, tucked in a corner. It's absolutely packed from the moment they open the door. It's packed, and it's got all of the Hemingway memorabilia. A lot of taxidermy, I see. And it happens that the bartender takes great pride in, you know, the squeaky clean glasses and all that. But for anybody jetting to Paris, um, it's an extravagance. It, it's, it's comically expensive, but I got to admit, it's worth it there just for one. We'll go there sometime, Tom. 
We are so privileged here with the quality of our guests. Um, Annette, Ed Hyman, uh, uh, Nicholas Heyman, excuse me, I'll get it right. Nicholas Heyman with us earlier. And right now, of equal quality, Jeffrey Sprague with us, with Vertical Research Partners, legendary in Wall Street, looking at industrials, any number of companies that particularly noticed work at Cowan um, a, a number of years ago. Jeff, you've got a, a very un-Jeff Sprague word in your research report. Please define for Mr. Immelt listening, what are dis-synergies? Well, dis-synergies, and good morning, Tom, would really be the, you know, the inverse of what we think about when we put companies together and, and it's, you know, enjoy synergies from maybe removing redundancies in corporate costs or, or other things. And so I was addressing the idea of dis-synergies along the lines, if you really pull GE uh, apart entirely, you start getting a lot of leakage in terms of tax and the need to put in place redundant corporate costs. Now, obviously, companies do spin-offs and things all the time, so these are things that yeah. can be overcome. Uh, the point I was trying to make, though, is that uh, to do some kind of wholesale breakup into yeah. many pieces, I think, becomes very inefficient. Is there a risk here? I asked this earlier of, of Nick. Is there a, a, a risk here of financial engineering? They bring out the report. They're all cash flow this, return of shares, return of cash, uh, share buyback, that. Is there a risk that they're doing an IBM redux of su- financial engineering substitute for firm excellence? Well, that's part of what's gotten us to the, you know, the concerns that we have. I think when I was on your show a few weeks ago, I talked about the weakness in the cash flow. And so we've, we've had this disconnect uh, materialize over the last couple years where accounting earnings are better than the actual cash flow yeah. of the company. And, uh, you know, I think that's still a very clear investor concern. And so, you know, here today, uh, the cash flow was better in the second quarter, but still worse than expected for the half. So they're, you know, they're in a bit of a hole on cash flow. They maintain their guidance for the year on cash flow, but they've got a pretty big uh, hill to climb now to, to get to that target. And I think uh, investors are going to be rightly concerned that there is some risk that they don't get there. Jeff, since certainly June, we've learned a bit about John Flannery, who's coming in as CEO. We know he likes the Allman Brothers. He wishes he knew how to play the blues guitar. He said that to employees in a, in a Facebook Live. What do we know about how he's going to run this uh, this company? You have that merger of the oil and gas division and Baker Hughes now uh, completed. What are, you, what are you looking for from this new CEO when he takes over on August 1st? I think we're going to see a... Uh you know, obviously, there's going to be a reevaluation of the portfolio, and I do think uh, things will get done with the portfolio. Notwithstanding my dissynergy comment, I think there will be a move or two, perhaps with oil and gas, perhaps with some other businesses. But I think he's really going to dig in and buckle down on cost execution. You know, this is something that the company obviously has has done, but I think there needs to be a higher sense of urgency. I, th- I think it's notable that when he took over the healthcare business, he ended up replacing 80% of his direct reports. Um, and he tied this to the fact that people just weren't, you know, moving as quickly as he wanted or uh, their behaviors really aren't what he was looking for. So I think uh, it's going to be clear there's a new sheriff in town. Obviously, this is, a, you know, a very big ship to turn, but uh, I think there's going to be, a, you know, a very blunt message that the company needs to, you know, buckle down here and, and drive performance. Is a, is a many billion dollar backlog a thing that's not going to go away anytime soon? Well, you have a very good backlog. I think the, the, the question that we really have, like when you look at some of these margins, is really, uh, 
you know, the, the margins in backlog, you know, what was done to, you know, capture those orders, right? Uh, you know, to, to be extreme, right? You could, if you want to give stuff away, it's easy to get an order. Mm-hmm. Now, I'm not suggesting they've given stuff away, but I think there's, you know, when you look at the margin pressure that there's been and kind of the cash flow disconnect, there there is some concern that, well, although the backlog is big in a nominal value sense, that the profitability embedded well, in it uh, perhaps is not that high. we got to get you back. we got lots to talk about. Jeffrey Sprague, thank you so much this morning, Vertical Research Partners. Uh, and really, truly legendary on General Electric. A lot of different stories here. I, I, I hope, folks, you heard the... Uh, distinctive differences there between Mr. Heyman, mm-hmm. more optimistic than Mr. Sprague, but that's what makes for a market. We like that. Brought to you by Bank of America, Merrill Lynch. With virtual reality, virtually everything will change. Discover opportunities in a transforming world. B of slash VR. Merrill Lynch, Pierce, Fenner, and Smith. Incorporated. Right now, speaking of team coverage, um, a gentleman who drives a story for it, and what's so great about Tim O'Brien, folks, is he doesn't do like the star turn Trump essay once every four weeks. He's really grinding it every day. And there he was last night with Anderson Cooper and Mr. Tubin grinding it up. How come you dress better for Anderson than you do for us on radio? What is I, that I about? I just want to tell you I have exactly the same clothes on as I did last night. That's how <laughs> hard I'm working, Tom. Working. Exactly. It's disgusting. I don't think you want to know that I've not changed my clothes. We, we, sitting to, next to Tom I, I think we should studio. get Anderson in a bow tie and that would move things <laughs> yeah. forward. Okay, so, you know, it's been a fabulous t- 48 hours for Bloomberg News and driving the story forward. And what's great about your work, Tim O'Brien, at Bloomberg View is you've always gone back to the original Mr. Trump. Does the last 48 hours surprise you of the president knowing the original Mr. Trump? No, it it doesn't at all. I think this is a guy who under pressure uh, lashes out. He's uh, uh, at the end of the day, there are two things I think that drive the president's thinking, uh, self-aggrandizement and self-preservation. And I think what you have now in the midst of this investigation is is pure self-preservation. And, and now we know that they're looking at trying to pardon as many people in the administration as they can. He's apparently, per the Washington Post, inquired about pardoning himself. And I would add, our great Bloomberg News reporters yesterday uh, broke a very significant story. Greg Farrell and Stephen Dennis this morning. Uh, yeah, both and Christian yesterday mm-hmm. on uh, the scope of Mueller's investigation expanding in a direction the president said he doesn't want it to go all of Trump's business deals. Tim, you're right. As Mueller certainly knows by now, Trump's business history doesn't merely have a closet full of skeletons. It has warehouses uh, full of them. What can you tell us about the Bayrock group, about Felix Sater, and um, how they might be the focus of Mr. Mueller's investigation? Well, the, you know, the tricky thing with Bayrock and, and, and the compelling thing about it is they were a development firm two floors beneath the Trump organization's own offices in Trump Tower. A principal at the firm, Felix Sater, had longstanding ties to both Russian organized crime groups and American organized crime groups. Uh, the Trump family, the eldest two children and the president, uh, were in business with Bayrock for several years, from about 2003 to 2011. They ultimately built the Trump Soho Hotel together. And there's an issue around how Bayrock was funded and where its funding came from. A big chunk of its funding came from overseas. 
investigators have been concerned that it, it possibly involved money laundering and in yeah. all in, in all of these relationships, the issue is whether or not there were representatives of the Kremlin or other foreign interests yeah. using these guys as in your ups. classic Trump nation, you have Citigroup in the index. You've got Chase Manhattan in the index. You don't have Deutsche Bank in the index. Is Deutsche Bank interesting here? Deutsche Bank is very interesting. They post-date my book, basically, because uh, I published the book in 2005, and Trump's relationship with Deutsche Bank as a major lender had just begun around that time. They, they financed his, uh, his hotel and condominium project in Chicago. And have since then become a major, I think, presence in his financial life. Tim, what are you going to be listening for next week? Uh, two days of, of big hearings. Of course, Jared Kushner testifying in closed session before the Intelligence Committee, then before the Justice Committee. We've got Paul Manafort and uh, Donald Trump Jr. What are you going to be listening for, I suppose, on Wednesday? You're not going to be listening for much on, uh, on Monday when those doors are closed. Well, I, I think everyone wants to know if are there quid pro quos in any of these relationships. Just to cut through all the noise, I think there's been a lot of conspiracy theorizing about Trump and Russia. I think there's been a lot of misguided focus on certain Russian-related topics. At the end of the day, I think what people have to care about was issues like sanctions on Russia. Were those traded off for financial favors in any way to Trump, Kushner, or anyone else in the administration? Tim O'Brien, thank you very much. Appreciate it. Tim O'Brien. Congratulations. Writing what columns, and also executive editor, of course, of uh, Bloomberg View and Bloomberg Gadfly. Yeah. I mean, it's been 48 hours of reporting for Bloomberg. It's been extraordinary. It's, what, it, what are you guys going to do Monday? Uh, I think Monday we're just going to get back at it, Tom. It's get back at it. That, 30, and really, more years. The story here is the grind of reporting, getting back at it every day. Like 3,000 people or whatever working on this story. It's a, it's, it's a good show. And Tim O'Brien, thank you so much. The Bloomberg View, and he publishes today. I'll get that out on uh, social media here in a moment. He writes for Bloomberg View, writes all over the street and worldwide with Allianz, Mohamed Elarian. Dr. Elarian, my uh, read of the summer is Olivier Blanchard at a conference in Naples who went right back to Blanchard Summers, went back to Blanchard Fisher, and really dug into the oddities of wage dynamics and labor supply. This is a whole uh, a font of interesting academic wisdom, folks, over 30 years from Professor Blanchard. You wrote about this in The Only Game in Town. Help us with this absolutely new wage dynamic we're in right now. So let me just first say, Tom, thanks for having me. And Olivier Blanchard is, is incredible, and things that he writes are always worth reading. We don't understand well three things today, wage determination, inflation dynamics, and productivity. And when you put all three together, yeah. it shows you that we, we really <clears throat> don't comprehend the economy as well as we used to. Why? First, there are significant structural changes going on to the workplace, to how the economy functions, and we may not be measuring well, let alone fully understanding. That's the first reason. Second, we have distorted the way the economy functions through years of well-intended yep. experimentation. And, and third, global relationships are changing. So, Tom, this is a period of either incredible uncertainty and or excitement for economists 
as they try to understand these new dynamics. Within these mysteries is the idea, and and you've always been wonderful about this, the idea that we want to aggregate our model together into one lovely model. Does Mohammed Alarian or Professor Blanchard or, or Lawrence Summers with hysteresis, do we want to finally say we're done with one model because of inequalities and because of the segmented nature of wages in our society? We're certainly done with one school of thought. I think this is a time for a more eclectic approach. You want, of course, traditional economics, but you also want a lot of behavioral economics. Um, That's become more and more important, especially after the Great Recession. So, yes, to, to your general idea, which is we can no longer rely on a single model, let alone a single school of economics. We need a much more eclectic approach. Let me ask you on the subject of of monetary policy about this movement toward or those agitating for a more rules-based approach to it. We saw the the formal tendering of a nomination for Randy Quarles to become the vice chair, a vice chair rather, uh, uh, for supervision at the Federal Reserve uh, this week. As you look ahead to that, to what the Federal Reserve might be, what is your counsel to investors about what could change if we do in fact get a more rules-based approach? My counsel, David, would would be be careful not to extrapolate too much what has been an exceptional period for central banks, including the Fed. The Fed felt morally and ethically obliged to step in because other policymaking entities were paralyzed by, economic, by political gridlock. Now the Fed is coming to the point where it wants to exit. So you, investors should be very careful not to extrapolate too much the, the Fed of the last seven years to the next seven years. We're going to get a different Fed over the next seven years. We're going to get a different Fed. We've heard a lot here from this Fed, a lot relatively speaking about what this balance sheet unwind is going to be like or what Fed Chair Janet Yellen would like it to be like, Mohammed. But given the fact that we're going to see such rearrangement of the personnel here over these next few months, how confident are you that whatever she sets up and sets into play is going to continue in perpetuity? So when it comes to the balance sheet, I think that what we're going to get is something very gradual. And at the end of the day, for investors, it's going to be like watching paint dry. It's not going to be very exciting. It's not going to be the basis of a major short-term trade, but it is going to change the dynamics of the marketplace in terms of who owns securities. In terms of rates, it's much more interesting. And here, David, it comes down to whether you are just a traditionalist which, who believes that the Fed will only look at employment and inflation as still mandate, or, like me, you believe that the Fed and other central banks are also going to pay a lot more attention to future financial stability. That is a fundamental difference, and I think that the Fed and other central banks are going to worry more about future financial stability. How do you see the, the, the regulatory role, the regulatory responsibilities of the, the Fed changing here? We were having a conversation earlier about where you do see action in Washington these days, and it seems like uh, there is some movement on the issue of, of regulation. Obviously, you now have Stephen Mnuchin uh, chairing the Financial Stability Oversight Council. Is, is the Fed's role vis-a-vis regulation set to change, do you think? I think it's going to evolve. I think we've entered a period of less regulation. It's going to be gradual. Um, I think we are going to see less economic regulation for sure. In terms of financial regulation, that's going to be a more cautious process, and for good reason. And that is because we still have the memory of the accident uh, fresh in our minds. Do you, can you link dollar weakness 
to the lower yields that we've seen. That's been the correlative moment of the week. We've seen lower yields and also a weak dollar. Are they attached or are they separate? So what we've seen, Tom, in terms of yields, and it's something that I look at every single morning, the differential between U.S. Treasuries and German Bunds. And you've seen that narrow significantly to around 170 basis points. It's not so long ago that that differential was 230. Mm -hmm. Why? Because markets are repricing growth expectations in favor of Europe versus the U.S., and markets are also repricing relative monetary policy stances in favor of the ECB being tighter than they thought before. Add to that a significant portfolio flow into Europe and out of the U.S., and you get exactly what you've seen, lower yields, a a shrinking yield differential, and a stronger euro, a weaker dollar. Yeah, you get a weaker dollar as well. David, jump in here on politics. Yeah, politics and and trade. We saw the the calendar get filled up here for later in August. We're going to have the U.S. reopening these NAFTA renegotiations. What have we learned about this administration's uh, trade policy? What are you you looking at? What are you uh, concerned about going forward here as we uh, undertake a rewriting or a renegotiation of NAFTA and as we hear more rhetoric about uh, what's going to be the trading relationship between the U.S. and uh, other major economies, including China? Of course, we had this big meeting in D.C. this week of uh, the leadership from the U.S. and China. So as, as both of you know, from day one, I've been saying don't expect a major protectionist phase, that when push comes to shove, the administration will not dismantle NAFTA, will not impose huge tariffs on China, will not change in a major way bilateral trade agreements like with countries like Korea. But what you will get is tweaking. And I suspect that over the next few weeks and months, that's what you're going to see. You're going to see the U.S. tweak NAFTA. And I think Canada and Mexico will be willing to do that. There is an argument to update it. A lot has happened since NAFTA was agreed to. And you're going to see, see, see lots of little tweakings left and right. But this is not going to be a major protectionist war. It's not going to be a trade war. It will be tweaking of bilateral and multilateral trade agreements to favor somewhat more the U.S. We've made it through this, I'll point out, without a single New York Jets reference, Tom. You've been remarkably remarkably restrained. Yeah, and I'm worried more about the New York Mets reference right now. That's that's the one that worries me more. I I watched some Mets ball, I think it was last night, against the Cardinals. Yeah. Yeah. Why you yen our producer held my hand and said, "Don't go there, <laughs> Mohammed." Thank you so Great much. Pleasure. So I thank greatly, you very greatly much. appreciate it, Doctor Larian. Uh, there with really important comments on this great mystery of wages in America, and frankly, and across all of Europe, is is why I really can't say enough about the intellectual challenges our central bankers have with where we are uh, on wages. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. David Gura is at David Gura. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.
Brought to you by Bank of America, Merrill Lynch. With virtual reality, virtually everything will change. Discover opportunities in a transforming world. B of AML.com slash VR. Merrill Lynch, Pierce, Fenner & Smith, Incorporated.